Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Kelly Outdoors. I'm your host, Kelly Belts, from right here in Wichita, Kansas. Um, tonight, we have a very special guest coming on. Um, it's Doc Hall. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Doc's been making calls for a number of years since so somewhere in the mid '80s. Um, got a fascinating life story, and the man is just—he's just a total pleasure to, to talk to. Uh, I hope I didn't worry him out earlier tonight. We were on the phone for about an hour and a half, uh, just trying to go over some things we want to talk about in the show. And I think we could probably have five or six shows and, and still not cover everything that Doc uh, could share with us. But he's going to sure give it a try a little bit here in a little bit. Um, anyhow, uh, some real quick announcements. I just want to say, hey, the guys out there in the USS Iwo Jima in the Persian Gulf, Hey, uh, the calls are on their way. They shipped out of here last week. Eric should have them. That's Eric Grinner. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I know I probably just butchered your name. Anyway, um, there's a bunch of guys on that ship that are duck hunters. They're they're based out of Virginia, and uh, they they use a lot of Brian Watkins stuff. And so they, they wanted to try something a little bit different. I didn't say better. I just said different. So uh, it's, it's on its way, guys, and I hope you have a chance to, to play with it and uh, enjoy it and make sure Eric shares. Okay, you, I know you, you Navy guys aren't big on sharing. Anyway, another big shout-out to Todd and Harvey over at the uh, NorthAmericanWaterfowlers.com. Great websites that they've got there. Uh, go visit Todd and Harvey and check out their stuff. They've got several sites that they've got up in Hattonen, and uh, it's a lot of fun, a lot of good stuff. Uh, also, the guys over at MidwestHuntingSource.com, another great website for duck hunting, uh, all things outdoors that are of interest to you, you can find there. Um, Dave over at DuckHunter.net, which is also the home of the refuge. Uh, Dave, you need to check your emails. I've been talking to you about wanting to set some stuff up from a radio show on your site. Uh, I think it'd be a lot of a lot of fun. There's a lot of guys on the refuge that are listening to my radio show right now. And guys, if if you visit some of these other uh, sites out there where they don't have any mention of my my radio show, talk to them. I don't charge for advertising. I don't charge to mention their stuff. And uh, you know, I'm trying to support the sport. Okay. And that's what it's really all about. I'm, you know, I'm not asking for money. I'm just, you know, put the name out there, let it happen. Okay, I really appreciate it. Uh, if if any of you guys are on callingducks.com or duckhuntingchat.com, you might want to put a bug in their ear too. You know, it's just, just it, it's it's good stuff for everybody. Um, it doesn't cost them anything, and uh, you know they can have a lot of fun with it, and, and it's great for the people that visit their sites. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, if you get a chance to visit the guys over on the Custom Calls Online site, probably some of the finest custom call makers in the civilized free world are over there. Everything from duck calls, goose calls, turkey calls, predator calls, mouse calls, mosquito calls—you name it. If you can call it, they make it. Okay. Anyhow, Doc's going to be on here in just a few minutes. Um, now, tonight's show is going to be a little bit different in the respect that uh, if you want to call in and ask questions, you can, uh, but there's going to be an awful lot of information that Doc's going to be sharing with us. Uh, he, he's really excited about something that, you know, he it's kind of a, a cool design on his uh, insert. Uh, it's a no-stick type insert, and uh, I think it's, it's one of those things that uh, is going to be something that, that Doc will want to, uh, kind of hold on to and would like to share with people. So, anyway, I think we got Doc calling in right now. If you give me one second, we'll get you on the air here. Are you there, Doc? Yeah, I'm here. Get All on. right, great. I actually did that right. Normally, I I click on that thing and whoever's on there gets nuked off the off the air. So, <laughs> anyway. well, that's good. Well, you know, we talked for quite a while tonight yeah, earlier, and uh, 
covered a lot of stuff, and I'm just gonna, you know, just gonna get right into it. Uh, gonna ask you how you got started, what what it was you were doing before you decided to become a, a legend in the call making circles. <laughs> well, I don't know about the legend, but it sounded good. Actually, yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, well, I've always been real crafty, anyway. I've, I've I've done all kinds of. Some folks might think weird things, but I've always liked to make things and. Of course, being a dentist, uh, used to using my hands a lot, and uh, so I got interested in in uh, uh, handmade duck calls and goose calls. I uh, I saw some that some folks had, and and then later than after seeing those, uh, I read about uh, an article in the old Shotgunner magazine about. Uh, custom call makers, <clears throat> and I uh, contacted a fellow by the name of Ray Wright, wrote him a letter, and uh, he was he was kind enough to call me back on the phone, and we talked a while, and I did like every, <laughs> every aspiring new call maker seems to do when they talk to me. I said, well, you know, I wish I could find out how to make these things, and and I'd love to learn, but I wouldn't sell them so I wouldn't go in competition with you, blah, blah, blah. And he came right back at me and he said, well, if you won't sell them, I won't teach you how to make them. Hmm. And so I said, well, why is that? And he says, because it's too damned expensive to get into it. And he says, you know, you you don't really know how much fun it is to to hand somebody something that you've made and have them give you a good price for it. Right. Uh, so that's always kind of been how I've gone about it, and and he was kind enough. I went back to Portage, Indiana, and uh, spent uh, four days the first time with him, and he had he had at that time a very complete shop, and and Ray was quite a good call maker and a and a world class caller himself, uh, called a number of times in the world, and. Uh, then went back home and started hacking on wood and and after oh six or eight months of that i I went back and spent another almost week with him, so I got quite a bit of really hands on kind of instruction from ray and um, so that's really how I got started making calls and it was really a pretty much of a hobby to begin with. And remained a hobby for a number of years. Uh, I did a lot of other things in the meantime. I was, when I started this, I was practicing dentistry. And then I had a, I had a health issue that required me to stop dentistry. I, I became basically allergic to just about everything in a dental office. And uh, so I had to quit dentistry. And uh, but that starts a whole other story. We won't get into that right now. But, <laughs> but uh, well, you have to watch me, Kelly. I, That's I, okay. I'm, I go on and on sometimes. That's all right. But at any rate, uh, so because of, of uh, uh, having to get out of out of uh, dentistry. Uh, I started looking around for something to do and, and uh, actually flew professionally as a pilot for a number of years. 
and decided that was too hard to do. And uh, and so uh, stopped doing that and eventually began to make duck calls pretty much full time. And uh, uh, I, as I told you earlier tonight, uh, I've been on the Internet for, for so long. Uh, I go way back, way before the the refuge forum started. And I knew David Corum uh, when he was on Hoosier Jim's Duck Blind, so I know him that far back. Hmm. Uh, and the, the, the call making just progressed that way. You uh, you rattled off some names earlier tonight uh, that I mean they're they're like the who's who of, of, of the call makers world. I mean guys that. Uh, some of them are still around, and some of them aren't. Um, but you, I mean, you rubbed elbows with some pretty famous call makers. Well, yeah, some guys that that are some of them still around. I'm, I'm not sure of some of the others. Of course, Ray Wright, uh, because of, because Ray taught me. And incidentally, I I've lost track of Ray. Uh, the last I knew, he was somewhere in Alabama. He, at the time I knew him, he was in Portage, Indiana. And like I say, I made two two separate trips back to his shop. Uh, Ray learned to make calls from a guy named Thurman McCann, uh, who was an Arkansas call maker, and I think uh, fairly well known for what he did. Uh, a, a fellow that I got acquainted with that I I had a lot of good back and forth with, and, and we were. We talked a lot about things. Was uh, a guy named Daryl Wright, who was from Iowa, and Daryl Wright started making calls way back in 1934, oh, uh, when I was only nine years old. So I guess you can figure that one out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I and then I I got to know Jack Wilson, who I think is a real colorful character, and Jack is is just a fine, fine craftsman. He does some of the nicest paneled uh, checkered calls you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I don't know him personally, I know quite a little bit about what Paul England has done. I was pretty good friends with Dennis Peschel, who I think is, Dennis was just a very artistic guy. Did Dennis was a, a decoy carver as well as a as a call maker, and then Dennis's son uh, is it Kent, Facial or Kevin? I anyway his son. I think it's Kevin. And, I, I know I'll get a thousand emails tomorrow when I say that, but I think it was I think it's Kevin. That sounds right, and he's he is a very good artist as well. I know. Right. And uh, I know uh, sort of know Kent Freeman. Uh, I've had some back and forth with Kent, and of course, most people know he's he's just a superb artist. Uh, I've known of Joe Lairs for the longest time. Uh, Joe Lairs probably has done some of the earliest work that I know of in no stick design on his inserts, and. Uh, uh, so I've known about him for, and Joe and I have a little bit of a connection. Joe is a—he uh, actually made his living uh, 
designing and machining dental instruments and equipment. Uh-huh. And, of course, I'm a retired dentist, so there's a little bit of connection, I guess. Right. Uh, and I've known Howard Harlan for a very long time and Paul Kenyon, who makes probably the the finest double reed call that I know of. And Paul has it's kind of an interesting story, I think, about Paul. Uh, he glues his, or used to glue his... Uh, uh, wedge and reed in place so that the guys couldn't take them out and retune them. <laughs> that was really the purpose for that. Uh, oh. He didn't want that to happen very much. Uh, I, I bet so, he sold a lot of inserts like that. <laughs> no, I don't After they took them so. apart, I, they I had think, to get them redone. I, well, Paul is another one of the older folks around here. and, and uh-huh. uh, uh, Some of us Older guys are kind of careful about how we do some of those things. We don't like to have people messing with it a lot. Well, you know, I think that's um, that's one of the hazards of being a call maker, where you actually have hands-on, uh, you know, working with the calls. I mean, you, you take a personal interest in them being good. You want them to sound right. And you know as well as I do that the first thing that 99.9% of every call buyer out there in the world does is they want to take it apart and see how it works. Sure. You know, and you know, <laughs> fortunately, I think you and I both have a lot of customers that know their way around a duck call. So uh, I get a few calls, you know, every year that uh, get sent back to me to get retuned because uh, I took it apart. I can't figure it out. Da, 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 da. And, you know, nine times out of ten, it's something really pretty simple, like the reed's upside down or, you know, the wedge was in there not yeah, right. Yeah, that's or, probably one of the most common things. The reed will be upside down or uh, very commonly, and you probably find this, that, uh, I'll ask them to please send the call back just as it is, mm-hmm. so I can see it. And very often they don't do that. Right. Uh, they'll take the read out and send it with no read in it. Uh, why I don't know, but but at any rate, quite often you'll find that the uh, the wedge is not all the way against the stop. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, there's a lot of folks don't understand that. That will cause the insert to leak air. Yes, and it'll be it'll blow hard. Right. And There's a lot of, course, of a lot of little things make all the difference in the world. Well, we were talking, you know, about detail, and really, uh, call making is uh, handmade duck calls are really all about detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, a lot of these details, uh, it isn't that the guys. Uh, are particularly careless. They just don't know about those things, I think. Right. Uh, but, you know, you, you need to really push that wedge all the way against the stop tight. Uh, I cringe when somebody says, well, the way to make a call sound better is to pull the reed out a little bit. And I just think that's awful. Because... <laughs> They don't know how much time it took to cut that thing to the right lengths to get it to sound right in the first place. <laughs> well, you know, there is a point at which the reed will operate at its optimum oscillation. Right. And uh, if you change the length of the reed enough to make a difference in, in the way it sounds, you have also changed the oscillation. And so if you go, if you go too short, and lots of folks think, well, I want it to be higher pitched. I want it shorter. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you go too short, lots of times you take all the duck out of it immediately. Right. That's, uh, that's you when your it, inserts get sent back to you. That's what happened to them. They sure. they start trimming the reed, and then they realize that you know they've screwed it up. I mean, it, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. You know, and after sure. you cut off too sure. much off of a reed, it's it's worthless. Well, you know? I always now with my calls, I send out extra cut reeds, and then I put in enough reed material to make four extra reeds with the instructions don't cut on what I sent you mm-hmm. cut on these and keep the ones I sent you and that seems to help somewhat well, that's good that's good now on, on your calls uh, I'm, I'm looking here on your website and, and for those of you that haven't been to Doc's website it's www.docdoccalls.com um, you've got you know you've got some really pretty calls. That's one thing I've always liked about your calls is they're they're simple designs. I mean they're they're functionally simple. There's nothing you know like wowza you know kind of elaborate looking about them. They're simple. They're functional. And down here you've got this. You mentioned it earlier when you were talking about Joe. Uh, this no stick design that you've come up with. You got your first generation, your second generation, and your latest design back in 2008. Tell tell us a little bit about that because you know what there, if there's one thing. The duck hunters seem to always want to talk about, and I don't care whether it's on the refuge or whether it's on duck hunting chat or whatever, they're always looking for a no-stick design. And uh, frankly, I know I know guys that could get just about any call in the world to stick, but I've heard nothing but, but good stuff about yours. And you're not using any kind of a chemical agent on the soundboard. You're not using any you know rain shield or anything like that. It's just the design that you've got there that, that basically inhibits the reed from sticking, isn't it? Yeah, that is true, and of course, it's 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 kind of popular for some some guys to say, "Well, there's no such things as a no stick call." Uh, I'm willing to put the no stick tag on the on my newest insert, and now that's not to say that somebody won't find some way to stick it, right? Uh, especially if they're trying. Uh huh. But it is as close to to foolproof. Uh, and I'll leave the definition of who the fool is up to whoever wants that one, but uh, <laughs> they they really work in terms of not being a, a call that sticks. Uh, the way this came about was that, that uh, I paid attention to what most of the folks talked about in, in uh, how to keep a call from sticking, <clears throat> and I was thinking about it one day, and I thought, well, obviously it's surface tension that creates the, the call sticking. And incidentally, just as a small aside here, uh, I'm kind of an expert on saliva since I've, I practiced dentistry for 38 years, and I've had my hands in it for 38 years. So I will tell anyone who will listen long enough that for those who say, quit blowing saliva into the call, <laughs> some people just cannot do that. They just simply have such active salivary glands that they have a, an overabundance of saliva. Okay. Also... I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to laugh, but... I'm no, no, that's great. <laughs> that, that, that can't be your single claim to fame. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I know, but well, it's one of them, Kelly. 
but uh, but I do know something. I well, I had a, a guy respond to me one time on a on a post. I used to post quite a bit more than I do now. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's just laziness or whatever. But uh, a guy responded to me and he says, "Do you know that some saliva is different than others?" And I said, "Well, in 38 years, I discovered that." Uh-huh. But that is the truth, and so when you when there are always the experts who, when somebody says, "Well, my my call is sticking," and those folks will say, "Well, we'll quit blowing saliva into the call," and physiologically, some of those people just cannot uh, fail to blow it full of full, full of saliva. Right. And then you know weather conditions make it such that. Uh, uh, condensation moisture is always going to collect in a call. Right. Now there is also another thing that uh, that if you pay real close attention to how a call is made, most calls are done with a straight through bore five eighths inches in diameter for the barrel, and then the insert is turned just a hair under five eighths. Well, that makes it fit pretty close. And by the time you cut the the sound surface and tune the call, you are filling half of the barrel almost side to side with the insert. And so any moisture that gets on that insert has absolutely nowhere to go. Right. Uh, I happen to make a, a Glodo-style barrel which is larger in the lower diameter than it is at the mouthpiece. And uh, so when my, and my call, I use a, a, an O-ring adapter on the, on the uh, insert so that there is space between the insert and the wall of the, of the uh, barrel. Mm-hmm. And then with the cutout on the side of the, of the insert, the saliva can run right down off of that thing, and it just doesn't build up. So it's quite effective as a as a no stick. But I started to say I I developed the no stick thing by saying, well, if if it is surface tension that is is sticking the call, then less surface tension should make less sticking. So I I started cutting a real narrow reed. And and I would send a narrow reed out with each one of my calls along with a regular size reed. And those narrow reeds, strangely enough, uh, don't it doesn't really hurt the sound of the reed to any great extent to be that narrow, and it really doesn't stick very much. Well, then that led me to think, well, if I can cut down the surface under that, uh, why not try cutting off the the insert and see what happens? It was sort of one of those empirical uh, experiments, if you will. Right. Where you just say, well, I'm going to try it and see what happens. And lo and behold, it worked pretty good. Well, the first iteration of that design, I was cutting out about a half inch ahead of the, for about a half inch ahead of the wedge, Cork and uh, it made the call maybe 60 or 70 percent non-stick, 
but it would still stick for some. And so I extended it after a period of time, and I've been doing this nose stick now since about uh, 1999, I think. So I extended it out a little longer, and I began to hear a different sound that seemed to be an improvement to me. And then I decided I was going to share this information with a few other dust call makers, and there's a, a little different deal because lots of us stuff call makers don't share things very much. Right. But I decided to share that with some of these other guys and uh, one of the fellas and, and I haven't gotten his permission to use his name but I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> uh, well, he's a great guy and I don't okay. think he'll mind me saying this. It's Jim Chamberlain. Uh-huh. Uh, but Jim Chamberlain went home and uh he he just cut the thing out even longer than the reed on the side. And he got uh, pretty enthusiastic about it, and he, he told me, he says, I, I went through all of my calls and did that on all of them. Because he said it not only made it not stick, but he said it sounded so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have found that, that uh, this design increases the operational ease of the call considerably and it's probably most noticeable on the low end although the the top end is is also in, improved with it so it's an exciting and i think a, a very valid new design that i think will become uh maybe more popularly used i hope i'm trying to get it to be so uh, so that's sort of how that came about. Well, Did let me let me ask you something. Yeah. You're, you're you're asking what you're basically saying here to to all the people listening, and I I, I know there's hundreds of callmakers out there. I'm not callmakers, but there's hundreds of people li- listening out there that you know own calls, and I know there's probably I don't know how many callmakers, but uh, you'd actually like for them to to try your design. Absolutely, yeah. In fact. Uh, I've I've had enough experience with this design that that I'm convinced that it is in fact valid. Uh, I've got more than ten years' experience with parts of the design. Uh-huh. The newest iteration of the design is only less than a year old, but it it is proving out to be quite effective. We also this this group of call makers have have uh, contacted uh, a uh, physics professor at a college who is doing a study on the action of the reed in the in the duck hall to give us some some understanding of exactly how the reed acts to make the different parts of the call sounds uh, i I made a remark to you today that sounded kind of bad to say it but and I don't mean it to be disrespectful or anything, but uh, I don't think most call makers really know uh, how the reed produces the sound that they're trying to produce. Right. And I don't think I knew until I got into some of this. Uh, it was more like, if you do this, this is going to happen. And that's what we call empirical. We think that's true. 
well, so basically, the, the guy at the college is going to tell you exactly what what's causing this and what what well, and expect some different things. Or we're, he he gave us a report of what they were they, what they had done. We we each submitted a call, and they ran these calls through some tests. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he gave us a report, a PDF file that is, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages long. And uh, it's so damn technical, I can't make much out of it. <laughs> so I got to go back and say, hey, what does this mean? In English, yeah, in, in yeah. layman's terms, right? Huh. Well, that's kind of that's kind of interesting. That's that's kind of interesting. If you hear that thing popping in where it's saying twenty seconds, ignore that, folks, because we've got uh, we've got Doc on here for as long as he wants to talk tonight. So anyway, um, you know, there's always been a correlation, and I think most call makers that, that do these things by hand, which I know is another issue that you wanted to talk about tonight, um, they understand that filing in certain places and sanding in certain places on a on a tone board can can create a a vastly different sounding call. Um, but I, I never understood quite exactly where, what, what it was until tonight when you said it, and it made all the sense in the world. Uh, if you're looking at it like a lever and a fulcrum, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world then, you know. Uh, and that's basically what the read is, and the, and the point on the soundboard where it actually starts to pivot up and down to vibrate. Well, there, there is, uh, I think, common, common belief among many uh, is that the the reed slaps against the sound surface and therefore produces the sound. And of course, uh, it it wouldn't be hard to figure out that if the mylar reed would would vibrate against that surface, doing all that sound, that you would see major wear on the reed. Right. And you just never see that. Right. Uh, the the main thing that will happen to a reed over time is uh, it it once in a while will de- delaminate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it hardly I I don't I've never seen one worn out. And uh, so I think it it's pretty easy to figure out that that it it is not slapping on the surface it is vibrating or oscillating above the surface. But I can't prove that yet. I just don't have the, I don't have the the proof of that. It'd be so kind of cool for them to take a, a slow motion camera and put it beside a, a call that's having a constant flow of air put into it with a, with a clear barrel, so you could actually see the reed moving up and down. I mean, and having a close up, so you could actually see that. I think because I, I kind of understand what you're saying. It's actually it's not actually hitting the soundboard itself. What it's doing is it's hitting the compressed air that's on top of the soundboard. Where the reed comes down and goes back up and, and gets its flex. Is well, that what there's? Yeah, actually, you're exactly right. And and uh, one of the things that uh, that people seem to believe is is super important in creating whatever sound it is they're trying to uh, to accomplish uh, has more to do with the curvature of the of the profile. Mm-hmm. Than indeed, where the reed might contact. Well, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but yeah. Uh, so that now, one of the common things, incidentally, is that I hear or understand uh, many people believe that uh, 
they will have a more stick-resistant reed if the departure of the reed from the reed set or seat is upward. And we call that kick. Uh, well, some of us do. So that the reed kicks up instead of down. Uh-huh. Uh, although now some of the very best calls uh, are are calls that sharply depart downward from the reed seat, and uh, and they sound great. Huh. Uh, it, it's my opinion that you lose some top end when you kick up. Well, you end up with a raspier call. That's true, but right. you lose some top. Right. You know, there's. I, I don't know if there's any such thing as a, as a perfect... I, I know someone's going to call me and tell me there is, but it, it, as a perfect all-around duck call. I mean, to, and because everybody's ear is different, you know. Um, I'm sure as you, you being a custom call maker, you've gotten uh, probably hundreds of calls over the years from other call makers that wanted to trade with you or whatever. And I know I, I do. And I, I, I take them, I look at them, I play with them, and then I blow them and I, I sit there and sometimes I go, wow, that sounds great. And other times I go, what in the heck was that? You know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering if maybe somebody pulled a fast one on me. But, you know, it's, it's and this is going to sound really weird, but it, it's kind of a regional thing too. Okay, what what some people in certain parts of the country think sounds like a great duck call, in other parts of the country they would just chuck it back in the truck seat and leave it there. Absolutely, you know? that, and that's, that surely is true. And it's really kind of strange because I know that here in the Midwest, I mean, you're up in Nebraska, I'm here in Kansas. I mean, I, I like a full-bodied, full-throated call that you know I can reach out there with, yet at the same time has plenty of low end for up close hunting, like in the sloughs or in the ponds or rivers or whatever. But down south, like in Louisiana and Arkansas, they like those screaming high things that, you know, have have no low end on them whatsoever, you know. Um, but they're they're trying to get the attention of ducks that are out there, you know, three quarters of a mile away. You know, and I it's just it's it's kind of a regional thing. And I, I know that the Cajun squeal is real big in certain parts of the world. Um what's kind of funny, not so much part in the part of the world that it's named after. You know, yeah. uh, I've only had one guy from down that part of the world tell me about a call that he liked to have the Cajun squeal. Most of them, it's like, well, that was that was something that wasn't, you know, it's not something we used in well, here. Well, in Kelly, there are dif- different definitions of what the ca- Cajun squeal is. That's a stuck duck call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but actually the guys who make that, uh, and they actually pinch off a note is how they accomplish that right and uh, uh, i was just trying to be funny i'm sorry <laughs> no no i i understand what you're doing but you know so many of the things that we deal with an example is i think there there are several definitions of ring when we talk about a call ringing on top mm-hmm. uh, i understand ring to be what we could term as a composite sound where you can really hear two different tones. Uh, and you will hear that on the bottom as well. Right. And that's a composite sound. Other people believe if you blow as hard as you can into a call and it makes your ears ring, that's ring. 
just so loud. there are some different ideas about that. Right. Hey, you know what? Not to bring up an, an ugly subject uh, that I know a lot of people are going to get all wound up about, but I will anyway. We were talking earlier tonight, and, you know, I asked you the question about handmade calls. Sure. Okay. Now, I mean, my opinion is, and this is strictly my opinion, so before everybody out there gets all bowed up and everything, here, here's my opinion. Okay. My opinion is that a handmade wooden call made by somebody that has got some skills in that area that makes a good quality handcrafted call that pays attention to detail, it sounds like a duck, it does what it's supposed to do, and, and it has the old world charm of, of fine handcrafted workmanship, in the long run is going to be worth far more than a call that was basically turned out on a CNC machine in mass. Um, with somebody's name slapped onto it that may or may have not, you know, been involved with the design of the call somewhere in the past. Now, you know, you had you had expressed some some opinions about that, and I'd kind of like to hear. I mean, you've been around this for a long time, okay? Compared to me, I mean, I've only been doing this for like five years, almost six years now. Um, and you know, you've you've seen a lot of calls come and go, and you've seen a lot of co- custom call makers, and I mean, you. You know the difference probably better than most as far as what a, a good quality call is and, and the people that pay attention to, to detail. You know, because that's really where I think the separation line is between a, a, an excellent custom call maker and somebody that makes calls, you know, for grins well, and giggles. you know, Kelly, I think it's fair to say that that each each one of those divisions that you talk about have their place and and the reason that they're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you'll see you'll often see people. I'll, I'll use the refuge as an example. Uh, will say, well, I wouldn't spend more than twenty five dollars for a call, no way. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's all they want to spend, and so they they aren't looking for something that may be a lot more expensive to buy. Right, and that's a perfectly valid way to to look at it. Now, the the thing that that probably is not fair is if those same people will say, my twenty five dollar call is definitely equal to somebody's hundred dollar call or whatever, because that is not true. Right. Uh, the 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 call that, that demands, as we were saying, so much. Uh, attention to detail uh, that may have something that you value higher, and that might be the kind of wood you're using or the kind of band you're using or the treatment that you use. Uh, Incidentally, talking about treatment, uh, we can even talk about uh, what has happened with stabilized wood. Look look what's happened to some of these woods when, when we're able now to stabilize them. Oh yeah, uh, but that increases the cost. Well, you look at you look at where woods like uh, Buckeye Burl, for example, and Box Elder. Sure. Um, not not two woods that came up on the on the radar screen for call making until stabilization, you know, became a reality. No, you well, you couldn't use them. Right, and and they're they're freaking awesome. Most of the woods most now. of the spalted woods would not be good enough to use. Exactly, exactly. There's there's a lot of them. I mean, I mean. Lord, 
there, there's there's so much stuff we could cover in in this radio show that would last until eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Well, um, you talk about woods. Now, there's another thing because uh, there are so many woods that are wonderful and so attractive. Uh, one of one of the fellows that we hear about a lot. Uh, who will send different call makers different woods. Uh, gosh, I think he knows a ton about wood. He's always coming up with something new or something better or something different. Uh, I had to learn to make, <laughs> I had to learn a lot about woods because fairly early in my experience making calls, I became allergic to all of the, the rosewood, starting with Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And at that time, and if if you didn't use Coca-Cola, you weren't a duck call maker. Right. And uh, so when I got allergic to that stuff, I thought, well, the world's come to an end. I, I'm all done. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, it it was really traumatic. But no, I, I, I know. it. it woods are kind of like a phase. I mean, what you know, what's the flavor of the week, you know, kind of a deal? Well, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So. But I was forced because of that then to learn about woods, and uh, and I've I've tried to learn as much as I can, and you know uh, that's one of those kind of deals that I learn about a new wood, and next week there's another one to learn about. There's just uh-huh. a lot of woods, and people will ask me, uh, does it make a nice duck call? And all of these wonderful dance hard, beautiful woods are just spectacular duck calls. What is your, what, what would you say your favorite wood is? Not well, stabilized. My favorite, my favorite all of all is Mexican ironwood burl. And and for a lot of reasons. It's, it's extremely colorful wood, or can be. Uh, it no, I'm I'm going to throw around a couple of words, and I don't want to sound too wordy. But uh, if you if you view a tiger eye stone, it has a depth of luminance mm-hmm. that the term chatoyance is used to describe that. So that a wood that has a depth of luminance can be said to to have chatoyance. And the chatoyance in uh, Mexican ironwood is just maybe some of the best you've ever seen. Another great call or wood that uh, that has that same chatoyance value is uh, curly koa. And koa, incidentally, isn't great wood unless it's stabilized. Right. It's a very lightweight wood. I was very surprised yeah. the first time I got a hold of some. I was. I picked up this big block of the stuff, and I, I was really kind of shocked at how light it was. It, there's no there's no weight to it at all, you know. Of course, I had to send it off to get it stabilized, and then it was a whole different animal. But sure, sure. What about the mahoganies? I mean, I've I've seen that. What you're talking about, the gold streaks, it almost looks like an iridescent. Yeah, those have some chatoyance. Uh, there there are a good number of woods that that will exhibit that value, and I always tell people when. When uh, I do make them a, a, a nice ironwood call, uh, take it out in the sunlight. Look at it under the sun. Uh-huh. It is just spectacular. Mexican 
burl ironwood. Yes. Okay. Hard to find. It's embargoed. So it's oh, so you got to have guys smuggling it across the border dock? Is that what you're well, saying? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I I had bought some of my finest ironwood from a guy in Sonora, Mexico. We probably ought to stop this conversation right now before somebody starts listening. <laughs> well, it's uh, a great wood, and then then uh, we talked about stabilized woods. Uh-huh. Uh, Mexican ironwood has a quality that is a self-stabilizing quality, meaning that, and incidentally, stabilization of wood occurs when uh, acrylic uh, parts are uh, forced into the wood, usually under high pressure and then with fairly high heat. the, the acrylic, and I'm, I'm something of an expert about acrylic, having been a dentist for all those years, because we made a lot of dentures uh, and things out of acrylic. Uh-huh. Uh, but acrylic is, is made up of a powder and a liquid. The powder is called uh, polymer, and the liquid is called monomer. And when you put the two together and add a little bit of heat, then it goes through what is called a copolymerization, meaning that it forms up into a solid. Mm-hmm. So that's what—that's really what happens. Now, there are misconceptions about what stabilized wood really ends up being. Lots of people try to make it as though it is the next thing to acrylic. Uh, and this is just an opinion, Kelly, but I, I think that the wonderful thing about stabilized wood is that it still maintains the cellular values of wood without the expansion and contraction that normal cellular wood would go through, especially with taking up moisture. Uh, back to Mexican ironwood. Ironwood is a self-stabilizing wood, meaning that when it is cured, it it undergoes a sealing off of all of the individual cells in the wood, and it just does not swell up or change dimensions when it gets wet. Right. So it's a wonderful, wonderful wood. Yeah, and you know what? I've noticed in the last, I'm going to say probably three years, that the prices on that has really started to get more reasonable. For a lot of that wood, um, I know there was a, a point in time when a lot of the, the stabilized wood was just freaking expensive as all get out, you know. Um, oh, it was. In fact, I probably have used stabilized wood as long as anybody I know making calls. Uh-huh. So I got into it very early, and uh, it was it was pretty spendy to buy uh, stabilized wood, but there are there. Are, Back to the market of people who buy calls, right? There are a lot of people who want something really nice, and they're willing to to put up the money they need to to get something that nice. And so back again to to good for the guy that only wants a twenty five dollar call. I understand that, uh, but there are folks that want really nice calls, and then of course we have collectors who are interested in in things that are 
are interesting to have and pretty to look at. Absolutely. Yeah, they're they're the, they're the guys that actually kind of set the bar for a lot of these calls as far as uh, prices and stuff. I've I've seen some collectors pay some ungodly amounts of money for calls over the years, and it's just like you scratch your head. And of course, you know these guys know what they're doing. I don't have a clue. You know, I've, <laughs> I I got a friend of mine. He's an accountant, and this ought to scare you. What what he's doing right now? He's taking all of his money and he's buying baseball cards. Okay. Um, well, if he knows what he's doing, he may Yeah, I hope he does, because he's got a heck of a collection going on, you know, and he's spending all of his kids' college money, you know. But um, a lot of these collectors, and I mean, you kind of hit on it earlier, and I don't want to sound morbid when I say this, but every one of us eventually uh, goes goes on, you know, to the next stage in life, uh, which is we're not making calls anymore. Uh, we're, we're no longer on the planet in a, in a living, in living form. And... Um, you know the calls of of the great call makers, uh, and and sometimes the not so great, the obscure. I mean, my God, some of the some of the most obscure call makers in the world um, suddenly find fame that was way beyond their comprehension when they were alive, uh, because their calls were discovered after their after their passing, and they be, they become worth like freaking fortunes. You know, well, um, do. I don't I don't see that with a lot of the <clears throat> mass produced calls. Of today, I mean, that just doesn't doesn't stand a reason because you know if the person whose name is on the call was never personally involved with the making of that particular call in the first place, you know what I'm saying? Sure, and in yeah. fact, the the truth is that uh, that some of the you know the, I think I said this to you earlier uh, that it really isn't fair for guys like you and me and some of the other guys that do handmade uh, one-at-a-time duck calls to be compared really in most ways with companies that do hundreds and thousands and thousands of calls. Right. An example is that Rich and Tone, one of the most, most popular calls on the market, the last figures I knew, and these are fairly old, but they were making like fifty or sixty thousand calls a year. Wow! Uh, they don't do the same thing I do. I, that isn't to say they can't do what I do. They just don't. Uh, interestingly, that brings up, for me anyway, another subject that that I would like to mention, and that is that uh, we talked about the difference between calls that are CNC'd or calls that are handmade. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those things that are handmade will always have a handmade value, and will, there will be a market for the, the best of those. Right. Maybe not all just the best of those. <clears throat> In terms of acrylic calls, and there is a kind of a, an elitism uh, among some call makers who seem to make a difference in acrylic calls, whether those are hand-turned or not. And I don't, I don't quite understand that one, because the truth is, when you get done with an acrylic call, whether it was a CNC or a handmade acrylic call, there's still a piece of plastic. Right. And I don't mean that derogatorily. 
It just is that that's what it is. And then if if a CNC call is less valuable, I would refer them to somebody like Joe Lairs. Because Joe Lairs makes great calls, quite popular, and I think he probably does most all of those on a CNC. Uh-huh. But Joe is a superb machinist, and he, he does wonderful things, I think. So, you know, I I sort of think that we're a little wrong in in looking down on CNC calls. Right. Uh, maybe I'm a little selfish because my acrylic calls are CNC'd. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I don't I know if it's spend looking the time down. The doing them. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's so much as looking down. That's not what I would say. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. Okay. I mean, I know there's, there's a whole lot more to, to, to programming one of those things to do what you want it to do than I'm aware of. Okay. Um, but by the same token, um, you know, we're, I, I don't work with anything acrylic. I mean, I, I use some cylinders for some of my, you know, inserts on some of my calls and stuff, but, um, most of what I make is not most of, but 99.999% of what I make is all wood. Okay, yeah. um, and that's not to say that wood is is the best material in the world for a duck call, because I mean you could get into that argument and, and spit and crap until you're blue in the face as far as who's right. But um, the thing about it is, like you said, and I, not not meaning anything derogatory by it, but when you get right down to it, it's just plastic. You know, acrylic is just plastic. Um, and I, as pretty as some of those calls are, I mean, um, the, I don't, I don't think they hold a candle to a wooden call. I mean, because there's so much character. Even, even if you had a thousand calls made out of wood of the same kind of wood, okay, a thousand barrels, a thousand inserts made out of the same kind of call, same same kind of wood, none of those are going to be the same because of, of, you know, the the great unknown intangible in there, and that's God's hand in the, in that wood, because none of that grain is going to be exactly the same in every one of those calls, you know. Well, you're you're right about that, and you know, and, I, I've got a little a little line I use when I talk to guys about the difference in acrylic and, and wood. Uh-huh. You were asking me earlier what percentage of of calls do I sell acrylic or to wood, and of course I sell almost all wood. Uh, that's why why I'm doing a sale on my acrylic calls. But guys will call me and they'll say, which do you like best, acrylic or wood? Well, I'm gonna. what am I going to do, lie? Uh, I tell them wood. Right. And I do. Uh, I like wood because wood is the real uh, traditional material for duck calls. It goes back to the very beginning of duck call making exactly that i know about and i'm interested in that plus there is so much more you can do with wood in my in my estimation so i like wood a lot for that reason uh-huh. and i so i'd always end up telling the guys well you know i figure that if god had meant for duck calls to be made out of acrylic he would have had an acrylic tree <laughs> Ah, that's just as funny now as when you told me the first time. <laughs> just, you know, that's true. That's absolutely true. And, and you're right about wood. I mean, um, you know, you can stain it. 
you know, there, there's so many things you can do with it. You can heat it up by using, like, leather, for example, on it when you're turning it and start getting burn streaks in it or, or cause the grain to pop on it, you know, because of the heat. Uh, with some woods, yeah, some woods you do that with, and it'll it'll pop it real good and end up cracking the freaking thing. But, you know, I mean. Well, you can even turn uh, uh, hedgewood uh, green. Yep. Now, some people do it with dye. Some people do it with acids or whatever. And some people go out and dig up fence posts. You're, I, I'm one of the latter. I've got a stack of them out here beside the house. We had a we had a mulberry tree I cut down this last weekend in the backyard, and I've got quite a stack of it beside the house that I'm going to use for uh, some barrels later on. Well, I had the guys come out today and haul off the rest of the tree that I didn't want, and there was some parts of the maple tree in the front yard that they had to take out because we had some limbs that got broken down in an ice storm here this last year. And uh, <laughs> I got home at about 3 o'clock, and I, I heard their, their little chipper shredder out here just running and chopping up stuff, and all of a sudden I heard just... And I walk around there, and he was trying to feed a fence post, one of my hedge fence posts, into the chipper shredder. Um, <laughs> my kids have been out there throwing crap around, and they, they threw one of those fence posts over there near that pile of wood. Well, he just picked it up and started to throw it into that chipper shredder. Well, it stopped that thing right in its tracks. I wouldn't doubt it. Oh, my God. Of course, I, I, I wasn't upset because I have a, an abundance of fence posts right now. But uh, uh, it, you know, when I when I tell you that that is probably some of the hardest wood I've ever turned in my entire civilized life, that, it, it is that, beyond that hard. It can get pretty hard, Kelly. I, I have cut some old dried-up hedge with a chainsaw, and it will actually throw sparks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this stuff is this stuff is all kinds of that, and and then some, and it's nasty. But when it's all turned down and everything, I've got some pictures on my website of some calls that I made out of that stuff, and it's just it's it's beautiful. But you know, um, one of the one of the things I wanted to talk to you about just real quick. I mean, we talked about the handmade calls, um, you know, and I, I agree with you on that. That the handmade calls, I mean, in in the long run. Uh, yeah, they're going to be worth a lot more than the than the ones that were mass produced. There's no ifs ands or buts about that. Um, and there's always going to be those people out there that are going to want the twenty five dollar calls. Okay. Um, now, when you started doing this, there was no there was no books to go by. There was no websites to get on to find out about how to make calls. You had to hook up with somebody that was that was a call maker. You had to spend some quality time with them, and you know Ray let you come over there and hang out with him. You know. Um, I know there's some new call makers listening to this tonight. You know, it, what is it you've seen that's changed in the in the call making industry since you've been doing this, and and where do you see it going? And that's a that's a really simple short question. Well, you know, I can tell you, I really, I really believe we're heading back to wood more than we than we were a couple three years ago. Yes, we're seeing more people requesting wood. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, they're understanding either that they like it better for whatever reason. Uh, there, there's all kinds of arguments to make. That there's no question that that acrylic is uh, in many ways more substantial than wood. Delrin, if you want a substantial material. Uh, you can literally run over a Delrin call with a truck, and it won't hurt it a bit. Yeah. But, boy, they're ugly. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of guys that make those things, and they engrave them, and then they put that gold paint down inside the engraving. 
that helps a little bit. Oh, sure. Sure. You're right, it's still butt ugly. And and an, a Delrin call is just as tough as nails, and it sounds good. Makes a yep. good sound. Yep. Uh, so, you know, the, but there, I think really what I've tried to say is there's truly a place for everything. You know, it's, I wouldn't limit anything. Right. Uh, but call making has for so long been uh, almost all acrylic. And I, I think, I think I see more interest in wood, and maybe that's just my own special niche, if you will. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I honestly think that you're, you're probably onto something there, you know. Um, and the, and the, the cool thing about it is, is that, you know, guys like you and and a lot of the other small call makers out there are already, you know, predisposed to be, you know, heading in that direction. You know, um, because you and I both know that the the labor costs and the material costs and stuff of ch- of changing uh, from from one of these big call companies uh, from an acrylic, i.e., uh, plastic, whether it's polycarbonate or whether it's you know acrylic, to a wood product is going to be just unbelievably expensive. Yeah. You know, um, and, and the thing about it is, you know. <sighs> They did wood. They were the ones that actually pushed the acrylic, you know, because yeah, it was more expensive at the time. But now, look at petroleum at, at like under forty dollars a barrel. I mean, my God, their acrylic is is dirt cheap compared to ninety nine percent of the wood I use. Oh you know? yeah. yeah. Um, well, the material in an acrylic gall is not the expense of the acrylic. It's actually all of the what I call scut work. It, it's not uh, what. It's not what could be considered uh, skilled work to make an acrylic call. It's just polishing. Right. And uh, and I and I don't mean to to downgrade anybody. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying that uh, the and there's nothing much uglier than a than a damned old scruffed up acrylic call after it gets really ugly on your lanyard. Right. So you know. Uh, there's lots of arguments for both acrylic and and wood, but I I think uh, the wood has a natural charm that uh, there is a there is a market that is interested in that, and uh, and it, that's really traditionally been what primarily uh, the finest duck calls have been made out of. Well, you know, when when I think back, and, and I I'm not trying to wax nostalgic here, but you know, when I think back to when I was a kid, and and I think of my dad's duck calls and stuff, and I think of the duck calls that I saw hanging on the other guys that hunted with us, you know, they were the old wooden barrel calls, you know. And to me, that's always been, I mean, it, it's kind of like when it comes to waterfowl hunting, you, you've got labs, you've got old shotguns that the bluing's mostly gone off of, uh, you've got you know hunting coats that have got patches on them over patches, and you've got duck calls that are made out of wood that have been on that lanyard or, in most cases, a piece of simple decoy string, you know, for, yeah. for a couple generations. I mean, and that was that was it. Duck hunting and and waterfowling was a man sport. I mean, it was not for the faint of heart by any stretch of the imagination. And I mean, the guys that went out and enjoyed it and did it. They were generally cut above the rest. I mean, they they were tougher than most because the weather you went out in that was considered ideal duck hunting weather 
was stuff that most normal ducks in the right mind wouldn't be caught out in, you know. Well, Kelly, um, we used to always say that you didn't really have to be crazy to be a duck hunter. It just helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they say the same thing about ice fishermen, so I think ice fishermen and duck hunters have a lot in common. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that that was what I was talking about. I mean, you, you think about the nostalgic aspects of, of, of waterfowling, and, uh, I mean, you don't you don't see a lot of the acrylic, i.e., plastic calls, you know, in, in somebody's collections. They they go for the for the wooden calls because they they just they're more nostalgic. I mean, especially when you start saying hand carved. I mean that that in and of itself just you know speaks volumes. I mean, hand carved. What does that mean? That means that some guy stood over this call for two to three to four hours and made it by hand. It didn't get pooped out of the end of a machine. It was done by hand. And that, in and of itself, you know, lends value to the call. And if the guy, like yourself, happened to make a pretty decent call, then it's going to be worth a lot more in the long run, you know. Well, of course, I have an argument in that in that direction as well. And it's seldom ever you see a really good craftsman who cannot make a really good duck call. Right. Because that, that is craftsmanship. Absolutely. But what is what is the more valuable? There, therein lies the catch. I mean, sure. you know, is it going to be wood, which gets my vote, you know, um, or is it going to be the acrylic? I mean, and of course you're going, to, you're going to have those guys out there like Mike going, well, what about you know stabilized wood? Well, that's a whole different animal. You know, that's you know, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. But hey, um, before we wrap this up tonight, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned something to me uh, both times we've talked. Um, about a very good friend of our family that uh, you had a chance to meet and you had oh, a chance to talk to. Bob Dole? Yes, Senator Bob oh, Dole, yeah. a yeah, very well. good friend of our family and a friend of my father's. And uh, tell 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 the people about that little bit of history, will I you please? Will. I will because it, it's very near and dear to me. Uh, I'm 83 years old, Kelly. And I say that so that you'll understand that uh, I'm one of the younger guys who are veterans of World War II. Uh, I went on a an honor flight from Omaha, Nebraska, to Washington, D.C. in September of last fall. Uh, we left Omaha at uh, 7 in the morning. We had to get up at, at 4 to get around. Our flight had uh, 246 veterans of World War II, and the age range was between 81 and 97. And they took us old coots back to in two airplanes back to Washington, D.C., to primarily to see the World War II memorial. And as you know, Bob Dole was very instrumental in in getting that thing done, both raising the money and the design. Mm-hmm. So one of my desires for this trip, besides the fact that I was genuinely thrilled to discover that uh, uh, this bunch of of young people, and I, I call anybody sixty and, uh, and under young, uh, but this, this bunch of young guys would go to the effort and trouble 
to herd us old guys back there, some of us in wheelchairs, uh, to see that memorial. And I just hoped that, that I would get a chance to meet Bob Dole because he's always been a hero to me. Uh, we mentioned about that, that Bob Dole was wounded in northern Italy, and mm-hmm. he was hurt so bad he shouldn't have lived, but he did. Right. He actually got hit early in the day. They were trying to take a hill, and he laid there and bled all day long. Nobody could get to him because he was pinned down. And finally, about dark, some guy managed to get up to him, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, and drug him off that hill bleeding. Anyway, we get to the memorial, and it is absolutely the most beautiful thing. It, it it couldn't have been done much better, I don't think. And sure enough, there was Bob Dole. And they had told us before we got there, they said, don't reach out and take his hand, because the one crippled hand, he keeps a, a pen in it, mm-hmm. so you won't do that. But he said, the other hand is giving him trouble, so don't take his hand. So I walked up to Bob Dole and said hi, and he stuck his hand out and grabbed me, and we had a, a long, wonderful conversation. And I was just thrilled to death to get a chance to talk with him because he was just absolutely uh, so generous uh, to talk to me. You know, and and that's the one thing that I, I will say about Bob. You know, um, that's not an act. You know, that's. That's him. That's not the politician. That's not that's that that's not him shining on an example of what he can be or, or was or could be. That's just him, you know. And a lot of people are, are like confused about that because they think that uh, you know that's just him being a politician. And you know what? He was that way before he was a senator. Okay? Sure, I bet he was. And. Um, I think I think his time in Washington has made him, if anything, maybe a little bit more cynical about people, and and you know how uh, callous they can become, you know. Uh, but Bob Dole, I think, will will be finally remembered by history as as one of the great people that we had in Washington. I know he's, like I said, you know he he and my father were friends. They knew each other for years. Um, and he's he's just an awesome guy. He really truly well, is. Well, I was glad to hear that about that because, uh, uh, you know, then you admire him as much as I do. He's a great human being. He's a great he's a great American, and he and he's a hero. I mean, um, that's it. I mean, anybody that could do what he did at, at the age that he did, and and you know, participated like that. Yeah, my hats off to him. I mean, you bet. Well, and I just want to finish about the honor flight and and let you know that. They took us around Washington, showed us so many different monuments, really, and, and memorials to, like the Korean and, and all those others, uh, Evo. It was just a super wonderful day, uh-huh. and and mainly because I had no idea that people still knew that much about World War II. Uh, we who were in it, of course, understand what went on. But I had thought, kind of cynically, that that 
the younger people had forgotten that with what's going on today, but they they haven't. And so it, it really kind of renewed my feelings for a lot of folks. It was just a wonderful thing to have happen. Uh, I've got another story, but it's too long to tell. Uh, I did run into a, a guy who uh, was on the Indianapolis, the cruiser Indianapolis. He was sunk. And uh, I'll tell you that on another on another show. That's great. I, I would love to have you back. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I've gone on long enough. No, I'm. You know, that's fine. Um, I would love to have you back on. We could talk some more. I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna here in the next few days. I'm gonna go out there in the shop and and jack around with your your uh, you know stick proof design and see if I can't perfect it for you a little bit. Well, Sorry. if you want if you want any <laughs> tips on it, I might jump on the phone. And I got your number uh, written down right here. <laughs> <laughs> No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But, you know, I, I will say this, that I think that a lot of people in, in my generation, and I think I told you this earlier, you know, we were spoiled by our parents. You know, our parents went through uh, the Great Depression. They went through the, the, the Second World War. You know, they came out of that, and they wanted to give their kids everything that they couldn't have when they were kids. You know, and I think that in turn kind of led to a softer, you know, sort of generation. And I, I don't mind saying that I'm part of that generation um, but I can honestly say that, you know, when I look back at the sacrifices that, that people like you and my mother and father made, you know, for people of their own generation and for those that followed, you know, uh, that's why it's that's why it's remembered so well is because people recognize the sacrifice, and you know, people look at the Second World War and they say that that was that was our last real, you know, uh, noble sort of conflict and you know the thing about it is and this is and this is based upon my time in the military and based upon the time uh, that I know of a lot of friends of mine that are still out there um, there's a lot of things going on every day every week every month every year that is keeping this country safe from from bad guys and there's Believe me, there's more bad guys out there than you can shake a stick at. But, oh, boy. You know, they, they don't all raise a flag and blow a horn and declare war. They do it in their own crappy little ways. And, uh, you know, uh, World War II was was the, the last great global conflict. I mean, there was not a country in the world, with the exception, I think, of like three in Europe that weren't involved um, in one way or another, you know. Um but it was it was a it was a different well, Kelly, generation. It was so big, it's hard to even understand. Oh, I know. Uh, it's just incredible. Part of the memorial is I mentioned this today. The stars. It's called the stars. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, four hundred star gold stars on a field, blue field, and each one of those gold stars stands for a thousand dead. Right. A thousand Americans dead. Right. Four hundred thousand. Right. That gives you some notion. The other notion is that I have so many acquaintances who served in that war and who did absolutely heroic things. You 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 hardly can find somebody who didn't do something really, really great. There was just so much of it. You you told me your dad was wounded. 
mm-hmm. uh, and that your dad was in quite a bit of combat. Yes. And this was very common. And, you know, Dad, that that was the one thing about it was I think I was probably 17 or 18 years old. I knew my father was in the service, but I didn't. I never knew what he did. He never talked about it, you know. And and finally, it was actually about a week before I went away to, to I joined the Army, and I, it was about a week before I left the Army. He sat me down, and he said, now, son, he goes, I know what I know what you're going to be going into. He said, it's going to be a whole new world for you. Um, he, he warned me about playing cards with the, with the sergeants because they'll clean you out. Um, that was good advice. Um, but he said, you know, when, when things happen, he said, it's going to be up to you to decide whether you want to share that information or not. You know, he said a lot of things are just best kept to yourself. You know, and it wasn't until years later, I mean years later, you know, when I was talking to Mom about this and that and everything else, and I told her, you know, about what Dad said, and she goes, you know, your father, uh, he would never talk about what he did in the war. He said, you know, he would talk about it occasionally, but not very often. And it wasn't until I was probably in my 30s when I found out what my dad actually did. You yeah. know, and I was like, God dang, Dad, why didn't you tell me? He said, because it wasn't... No, that's not unusual. It wasn't that big a thing, you know. it was. I've got I, another just a little funny. In my job about how the service was. I went in the service when I was 17. I, I was in the Navy, uh-huh. and I was about as green as you can get. You you can imagine a kid from a little town in Nebraska, uh, and I thought every bottle of whiskey was supposed to be drained. <laughs> so I imagined I, I, I managed to get myself in a whole lot of trouble. That's a Nebraska thing that hasn't changed much. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, some of the older guys took me aside and straightened me out. Oh, you yeah. know who the older guys were? I have they no were idea. Guys, twenty-three and twenty-four. Oh yeah, the old one, the old guys. Yeah. But they straightened me out and said, "Hey, you can't do that." <laughs> and that's God's truth. I'll bet. Yeah, it, it was a it was an entirely different world back then. You know, entirely different world. So, anyway, Doc, we're at the end of our evening. I think I want to have you back on again. Can I get your word that you come back on again with us? Sure, sure. I, I'd, I'd love have to have you. Time and and I hope I haven't bored everybody. No, not at all. It's great. I mean, you know, the, it, it's a piece of history. You know, that's the way I look at it. It's it's a piece of history. I mean, whether it's about call making or just life in general. You know, and that's what this is all really about. It's just about getting to know you and a little bit a bit about you and your stuff and what you do, and that's what it is. You know, so um, I'd love to have you back on again sometime. Okay, yeah, thank you. All right, I'm going to sign off now. Uh, again, uh, Doc, thanks thanks a heap for coming on. It, it's been a, well, a true pleasure. And thank you very much, Kelly. You've been a pleasure to talk with. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I have to write that down and tell my mom you said nice things about me. She won't believe it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Good night, Doc. Good night. All right. Um, Hey, folks, everybody everybody out there that that joined us tonight, I just want to tell you thanks for for listening in. Um, Doc is probably one of the greatest guys you ever want to talk to. He he is an absolute gem of a human being. Uh, If you get a chance to visit his website, it's doccalls.com, D-O-C-calls.com. Check them out. I mean, they're they're great calls, and a great guy. I mean, seriously, there's there's a lot of great guys in this business, but Doc is truly one of the best. Um, take a look at his website. Those 
those uh, Cypress calls, those are freaking awesome. But uh, he told me they're not really for blowing. They're more for, like, setting up on a shelf. Anyhow, uh, thanks again for joining us tonight. It was I know the show ran a little bit long, but God knows it was worth it, okay? Uh, y'all have a great one, and we will see you next week. Our guest next week is going to be Joe Lairs from California. And uh, that ought to be a great show. Joe is, is quite the character. He's a lot of fun. And uh, the man knows his calls. So uh, God bless. Take care, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks again. Bye-bye.